Okay, you guys can turn over to Acts chapter 10. We've been kind of watching the growth of the early church, watching it spread and expand. Um, It's now kind of headed out of Jerusalem. Uh, The graphic kind of shows you, you know, there's a little dot in the middle, that's Jerusalem, and then it just kind of keeps spreading out. And right now it's it's gone to Samaria and it's gone to a few other places and it's about to begin to include Gentiles. Gentiles is just another way of saying non-Jewish people. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Congratulations. Uh, this marks kind of the beginning of a huge paradigm shift. And a paradigm shift happens when you you used to think of something one way, and then all of a sudden you begin to think of it in a whole new way. So, for example, if you were somebody that believed in evolution, and, and then all of a sudden you believed that there was a creator, that's a huge paradigm shift. That changes everything. All of a sudden things go from kind of random chaos or random chance to a creator, a designer, an architect who made everything, and, and now life has purpose and life has meaning. Um, so that would be an example of a paradigm shift. This shift that Peter is about to undergo um, is huge in this way because up to this point in Jewish history, God was the God of Israel. They were his people. And Peter's about to receive news from God that will ever change that because up to this point, again, the Jewish mindset was that Gentiles were unclean because of their morality, their diet, their practices, their distance from God. Unclean. That's kind of when you think about that, it's, I couldn't help but think back to like grade school when, you know, we would have these, you know, like girl germs and we would have the, the pretend, the cootie spray or whatever, like unclean. But this is different than that. This is, you know, God sees things. He, he, he differentiates, that was a tough one, between clean and unclean. And Peter's about to get a lesson from God on how somebody can go from being unclean to being clean. And apparently the process has already started because in chapter 9, Uh, it ends up by telling us that Peter was staying in Joppa at the home of Simon the Tanner. Um, A tanner is somebody who works with dead animals. So in the Jewish mindset, a tanner would be perpetually unclean. So for him to be staying at this guy's house is is kind of a big deal. I love that Simon the Tanner, it always makes me think of, I don't know why we don't do that still today because we've got so many Daves that would be really helpful if we had, you know, (laughs) Dave the plumber and, you know, but... The truth is, you got, I figured this out as I was reading over this this morning. Simon, Peter, Simon the Tanner. You see that? You've got Simon and Simon, and so you had to make it clear. I don't know why. So maybe they didn't always call him Simon the Tanner, but I have a feeling they did. Chapter 10 is going to start out by telling us about this man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman. He was a, a soldier, and he lived in a town called Caesarea, which was about 30 miles away from where Paul was staying in Joppa. So verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort or regiment, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius is kind of a conundrum. He's an interesting character. Uh, He represents everything that the Jews hated about the Romans. He's He's a Roman officer. So that means he's part of the army that has occupied Jerusalem and taken over. He lives in a place called Caesarea, which was like the capital of the the occupation. So he's like, you know, his home base is there. So this guy fully represents the enemy to the Jews, both ethnically and politically. And yet we're told that this particular Roman officer was different in that he was devout. 
he feared the one true God. And he led his household accordingly, which prompted a visit from the angel of God. And we we see that in verse 3. It says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the ninth hour uh, is 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon. And, and it would have been a normal time of prayer for Jewish people. There was the morning time of prayer at 9, the afternoon time of prayer at 3, and they coincided with the daily sacrifices. So it was normal to see somebody praying at 3 in the afternoon. What wasn't normal was to have an angel show up in the middle of your prayer time. Right? That would be a little different. I'm kind of, I thought about this, and I'm thinking, I'm kind of glad that God has never done this to me because I, I don't think I'd make it. As startled as I get, as easily as that happens, um, I mean, a bird can fly out and I'm about, you know, <gasps> so I'm pretty sure that would be the end of it for me. And I love that, that it tells us he stared at him in terror. And I'm like, yeah, you think that's the normal response when you see an angel of God is sheer fright. But God reassures him and commends him and tells him that his faithful prayers and his gifts to the poor have gone, haven't gone unnoticed. God has he's seen them. He's heard them. He's remembered them. It says that they've gone up as a memorial before God. And I thought, have you ever thought of your prayers or your giving in that way? That they go up before God in this way that he sees and remembers. And I couldn't help but think of this one night on a hillside with a friend when I was probably 17 or 18. And uh, we were out doing the bad things we did at that particular time. And we were just laying up and looking at the stars. And I, I said... I wish I could just know him. I wish I could just know God. And that was it. That was my my little prayer that ascended before God as a memorial. And my friend came to me after I became a Christian. And he said, remember that night on the hillside when you said that? And I'd forgotten about it. But I thought, you know what? <laughs> what a cool thing that God heard me and he answered me, that little thing. And so when you pray, remember that, that God sees those. He hears those. He remembers them. I love the, the verse in Jeremiah 29, 13. It's repeated elsewhere in Scripture. And it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And, and I know a lot of you, you, you want to know God, but I don't know if all of you are seeking him with your whole heart. I think you're seeking a lot. I know if, if you're like me, I seek a lot of things with my whole heart. And God rarely is one of them. And I just encourage you guys to, to read, to listen to that. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So in verse 9, Cornelius summons two trusted servants and a devout soldier. He probably gets some guys that, you know, he trusts well because it's kind of a crazy thing to tell somebody, hey, an angel visited me. You guys need, you know, so you got to get some good guys. He gets three good guys and he sends them to collect Peter. Verse 9 says, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So the scene is now going to change to Peter and what's going on with him. And just like Cornelius, Peter is praying uh, when he receives this vision, it's kind of similar to what we saw a couple of weeks ago with Ananias and Saul. You've got these kind of dual visions going on at the same time where God is doing one thing with this guy and one thing with that guy, but but it's going to come together to, to mean something for both of them. Uh, it says Peter's praying. Uh, it, where, is it, where did it go? 
I got my glasses on and everything. The sixth hour, which if it, between the third hour and the ninth hour is the sixth hour. That's noon. And that's not the normal time to pray. Some people say that the really good Jews would add that, that middle time to pray. But all I know is that that's lunchtime, right? And uh, so Peter, a man after my own heart, it says that he begins to pray. He gets hungry. And, uh, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's what happens at noon. You know, you got your first breakfast, your second breakfast, 11sies. And then by noon, you start to, you start to get a hankering for some food. But this coincides with what God's doing here with Peter, the fact that he's hungry. So verse 10 says, and he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. That's a, that's a pretty interesting prayer time again. Um, God is kind of blowing Peter's mind with this vision. And in fact, he has to repeat it three times for Peter to get it. I don't know what it is with Peter and, and threes, but he did a lot of things three times um, and, and it had happened. And there's about there's three men about to come to his door. So, you know, I don't know if there's any mystics out there, but find out what that means, the, the threes. This is, uh, it had to be three times, I think, though, just to get it through Peter's head because he was so entrenched in the Jewish dietary laws and these customs that, that he couldn't see it any other way. His entire life, he's held this strong conviction that eating certain things or touching certain things would make him unclean. And so he says, you know, God forbid I would do those things. But God is letting him know that all of that has changed. And it's interesting because there are still churches today that keep a kosher diet for religious reasons, not for you know health reasons, but for religious reasons. And I always wonder what they do with this passage because this passage makes it pretty clear that it's okay now. And as excited as I am for this to be about all the different varieties of meats that are now available to me, that's really not the main point of this. This, this has a lot more to do with people than it does with food. The greater message that God is communicating to Peter is that just like the food that used to be off limits, now Jewish people are no longer off limits. That's, that's the big change. God can decide to make an unclean animal clean, and God can decide to make an unclean person clean. And so he tells Peter, you must stop calling unclean what God has made clean. But Peter hasn't quite put this together yet. He's still not sure what all this means. So verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men, and he said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. It's about a two-day journey 
And so they got there and they, they're going to need a place to stay. And, and Peter, you know, you already start to see the gospel kind of working on Peter because he invites them in. That means they're going to have to eat there. That means they're going to have to lodge there and they're Gentiles. So you're already seeing kind of a, a movement take place here. But basically all Peter knows at this point is that he's supposed to go with them without hesitation, right? Don't, don't be reluctant to go with them. I've sent them, but he has no idea what this message is yet that he's supposed to bring when he gets there. Verse 24 says that on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. I love the faith of Cornelius here where he's like, okay, God is doing something big. He's going to visit me. He's going to send a messenger. And he goes out and basically gathers everybody he cares about into his house, right? So when Peter, in verse 25, it says, when Peter entered, um, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet to worship him. And I can't help but see the posture of this powerful Roman officer who's willing to bow down to a, a Jewish man. Now, the problem is that he's bowing down to the wrong Jewish man, but, but Peter straightens that out for him pretty quickly and, and says, you know, stand up. I too am a man. And he talked with him and they went in and they found many persons gathered. I also think this is funny because Peter, you know, he's like, okay, God, I'll go meet with this Gentile guy. And he walks in and there's like a whole gaggle of Gentiles, you know, filling the room here. You know, the place is crawling with Gentiles. So if you're already thinking unclean, this is like, oh boy, this isn't what I bargained for. But that's what Peter walks into. In verse 28, he says this, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. This is Peter's aha moment. You see what he said there? He didn't say God has shown me that, the, that the, all the foods aren't unclean. He said people. So he, he made the transition from what God was showing him in the sheet from food to people. And he gets it now. We, ought, we see Peter right now fully submitted to God and adjusting his theology to match God's theology. And that's an important thing, which we'll get to later. Uh, he now understands the whole business of the sheet coming down and what all that meant. And he's ready to find out what, what God wants him to do next. So basically he says to Cornelius, what do you need from me? Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have command, been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter now knows exactly what's happening, why he's been brought here, what he's supposed to do. This is what we call sometimes a divine appointment, right? Cornelius had been a seeker of God for years. Even, even though he was a Roman, he, he was willing to, you know, try to worship the Jewish God the best he knew how. But he'd never heard the gospel. Cornelius had never heard the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ had done. He needed a messenger to come and tell him that. And I can't help but think about all the people in this community and all the people down in the Lapine community that are probably in the same state where they have a belief in God. They're, 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 they're seeking him some, but they don't know the gospel yet. And, and we have this, this opportunity, every one of us, 
to make that known. And that's the message that saves. You know, I think we get confused sometimes about what saves somebody. It's the message of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he did. That's what we need to tell people. That's what will save them. And that's what Peter came here to do that day. Peter also now understands that God's plan of salvation is way bigger than he ever imagined. It extends to a room full of Gentiles in in Caesarea. And in fact, it extends to this very room of Gentiles 2,000 years later. God's plan of salvation is just spreading out everywhere. Well, this is kind of an odd place to stop um, because the narrative continues to the end of this chapter and also into chapter 11. Next time we'll pick it up there and kind of see uh, what happened with Cornelius. We do know from verse 14, I won't leave you hanging, that Cornelius and his entire household believed Peter's message. They were saved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. So they're good, right? But we'll, we'll pick it up there next week. Next week, you see what happens is Peter has to go back and basically recap what happened in Jerusalem because they're like going, what were you doing hanging out with Gentiles? And he has to explain that. But I want to look at just a few takeaways from what we looked at today. And, and they are these three things. Our beliefs must yield to God's word. That's the first one. The second one is what Peter says at the end there. God shows no partiality. And the last one is this, that God is serious about clean and unclean. So the first one is this. Our beliefs must yield to the word of God. Every one of us grows up with strongly held beliefs, but not all of them are right. So I I grew up believing fully believing that if I were to go swimming within an hour of eating, (laughs) that I was going to cramp up and die in that lake. And it turns out that that was just a convenient lie for my parents so they could take an hour-long nap after lunch. Uh, It's not true. Uh, I don't think they were really trying to deceive us. I think most people think that that's true, but it's not true. Uh, I worked with a guy. This one just cracks me up, so i got to tell you. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. They hold to the dietary laws still. And we went out to lunch one time and I ordered a burger and he said, I can't have a burger, a hamburger, you know, beef. And I'm like, yeah, I think you can. It's not, that's not included in the, you know, I can't have that. Why not? Because red meat has blood and urine in it and I can't eat that. And I thought, well, that's really weird, but I kind of let it go. Well, then later I was meeting with his pastor for another reason. We wanted to discuss investigative judgment. If you ever want to go and research investigative judgment, it's a great Great thing to think on and talk to. But when I met with the pastor before we got into that topic, I said, hey, wait a minute. Can you just tell him that it's okay to eat red meat? He thinks there's blood and urine in red meat and that you can't eat it. And the pastor kind of put his hand on his back and said, you know, Greg, you can have a steak, man. You can eat hamburger. I don't know where. You might want to get a new butcher. (laughs) He didn't say that. That was me. But but you got that. I mean, so this guy's not eating red meat because he thinks that that's a, a religious thing. That, and it wasn't. He was completely wrong. So we have these views that we hold to, but they're not always right. The problem is when you have a certain worldview or a belief or a conviction, it's very difficult to have those things questioned. When you've grown up believing something with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, and then somebody says, well, that's not true. That's a hard thing for us. And, and the current generation has been indoctrinated with a lot of beliefs that are completely contrary to God's Word. God's Word teaches things so plainly in some areas, and you've seen this, this, this uh, generation growing up who doesn't accept any of those things as truth. And that creates a pretty big dilemma when somebody comes to Christ or when, when you're a young person being raised in the church today. 
when these two worldviews collide, one of them needs to go. Guess which one needs to go? It's not the Word of God. It's whatever you're holding that doesn't agree with the Word of God. And Peter had to adjust his belief that day to the truth of God's Word. And we have to do the same even if we find ourselves on the wrong side of popular opinion. And as Christians, that's going to be happening to us more and more and more. But be resolved to just understand if God's Word says it, it's true. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world but continually be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may be able to determine what God's will is, what is proper, pleasing, and perfect. Now, we may not get a vision of a white sheet being lowered down, you know, with a bunch of different animals on it to try to spell things out for us, but he has given us a book full of white pages with black letters on it that spells it out completely clear. Are you going to allow the word to determine what's true? Or are you going to allow the world to determine what's true? It's really one or the other. And and I got to just say, the world's truth changes constantly. Constantly. It's hard to keep up. Look, just go 10 years back and look at what the world said was true. It's changed. It'll change this week. It's crazy. And that's where people are looking for truth. God's word does not change. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can count on what he says. So that's the first one. Our beliefs must yield to the word of God. The second one is this. God knows, God shows no partiality, which is favoritism. And people, his people, shouldn't either. Peter was now a converted Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit, a leader in the church. And he had a prejudice he wasn't aware of. He viewed certain people as less than. And if Peter could do this without knowing it, what are the chances that you and I can? Is it possible that you've grown up with a bias that you're blinded to? Are there certain types of people who you wouldn't befriend, people who you wouldn't invite into your home or or sit down and have a meal with? Everyone is created in the image of God and has value. There isn't a race of people that is substandard, In God's eyes, He made all of His creation very good. It's easy for us to convince ourselves that we're better than other people. You know, we we tend to view ourselves in the best light and others in not so good a light. And we use criteria like skin color, where we live, who we know, how much money we have. You know, the list goes on and on and on. We, We categorize people. And that, that means we show partiality. And, and, and we're not supposed to do that. In his commentary on Acts, a guy named Kent Hughes relays a story of Mahatma Gandhi that he shares in his autobiography. It says, In his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back and said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain Hindu. Now, I don't tell you that as a guilt trip because the truth is, God could still get Gandhi. 
that doesn't like limit God. You know, because he walked into a church that did this doesn't mean it's the end for him. He still is responsible for God, for the, the truth that he has and the belief he has. But what a heartbreaking story to think about. What, what, a, what a terrible thing to think that somebody could come through the doors and, and be turned away for some reason. And I, I just know that over the, over the eight years we've been a church, we've seen some, some strange people come through our doors. Some of you are here right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've seen some weirdos come through our door. We've seen some, we've seen all kinds of people. And I can't help but just look around the room and say, look at how God has grown this church. Look at, look at the, all the different types of people represented here. That's a crazy cross section of culture. And it really, everybody's represented here in some way, it seems like, when it comes to our, our you know, cultural dynamic or whatever. Every time somebody here walks through the door here, we want them to know that we accept them, okay? We're going to preach the gospel to them. We're going to tell them about Jesus. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about all the things that we need to talk about. But nobody should be barred from coming through these doors. And, and, and it's been that way, and I hope it continues to be that way. And sometimes we'll hear that people come in and they say, you know what, I came in and I, I didn't immediately feel judged here. I felt welcome here. Now we're still, you know, we're going to start preaching the word, and that might change. That's okay. If the word judges them and, and does that, that's okay. We don't need to. The gospel is for everyone. And the cross is the great equalizer that levels the playing field. It puts all of us on the same footing, right? Sinners who need to be rescued by God. That describes every person that's ever existed. The gospel should help us to overcome these prejudices because God overcame his for us, right? I mean, if you don't get that as a Christian, you're not paying attention. Did God have a reason to be biased against us? Did he have a reason to, to leave us out of the equation? Every reason, quite frankly. And, and yet he sent his son so that we could become part of his family so that you and I could be adopted as sons and daughters. If he's willing to set aside his bias, and he can do that through Christ, we, we must do the same thing. So as people who have been accepted into God's family, we must not show partiality. The last one I'm going to talk about is that God is serious about clean and unclean. If you've read the Old Testament, you've seen this demonstrated in many of the laws that, that God gave to Israel. Um, God commanded his people to avoid Things like unclean foods, dead bodies, skin diseases, blood, all these kinds of things. There was clean, there was unclean. And interestingly, all of those things had the potential to make you really sick or even kill you. So there was a very practical purpose to all these these commands. If a person um, did become unclean, they had to go through certain purification rituals. They had to go through, you know, uh, whether it was leave the camp for a while or, you know, do these kinds of things. Before they could come back into the presence of God, they had to get purified. And God in that time was represented by the tabernacle or the, the temple. And so this is why the Gentiles were viewed as unclean. It kind of makes sense because they didn't go undergo any of those steps that were necessary to become clean before God. So they were seen as defiled. People today still have a lot of confusion about a lot of those Old Testament clean and unclean laws that God gave to the Jews. And they will often point them out to us and argue that we're hypocrites because, you know, we don't choose to keep some of those commands. You know, oh, you know, you're, you're okay with this, but you eat shellfish. You know, have you heard that kind of an argument? Or you wear a shirt made out of two materials? And, you know, they're, they're pointing us back to the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial laws. But quite frankly, those were done away with in Christ. They're gone. Christ fulfilled all of those things for us. So it doesn't mean that some of them may not be practical. There may be a good reason not to wear a poly cotton shirt right now. I don't know. 
but, but it's not binding like it was then. And the point of these laws really was to show how incredibly difficult it is to stay clean. That's what they, I mean, can you imagine being a Jew? Clean, unclean, clean, unclean, clean. I mean, all day long, you'd be like, oh, I'm unclean again. You know, and you'd have to go do, I mean, literally, that's what my day would be like all day long. I'm like, no, unclean again. And I'd have to go get clean. And that's what it would look like. And that's kind of how I feel still sometimes today. But that's what I get to pray to, to my Lord. It showed people that it was impossible to get clean and to stay clean. And if you have children, you understand this concept very well. Because when it comes to trying to keep your children clean, and keeping your house clean, it's like, forget about it, right? We had five kids, and at some point, we just came to the conclusion that clean's not an option. It's, it's not really going to happen until they, they move out. And I imagine that's exactly what God was trying to teach His people too. You cannot achieve clean. You can't do it. The problem with most people is that we have this idea of physically unclean. We, we get physically unclean but we really don't get spiritually unclean. We don't see ourselves like that. And then the Pharisees are, are really the perfect example of this. They only cared about what people saw on the outside. And Jesus was super hard on them because of it. In Matthew 23, he had this flowery language for them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, I lived the... the, better portion of my Christian life focused on outward, focused on appearance, focused on performance. And it's very frustrating to do that. And if you've come to the door, you know that when we're up here, we're, we're pretty open and honest and we, we talk about our flaws and stuff. One of the things I really hate is that I raised my kids that way. Sorry. See, what's what happened when you get off notes? <clears throat> you know, I started out just, just worried about outward appearance and not the heart. And I ended up raising... Some pretty good Pharisaical kids, a bunch of little Pharisees. And, and, and it was later, you know, on when God really convicted me that, no, it's, it's, you need to shepherd the child's heart, which is the name of a book. I didn't write that, but um, you need to be focused on the gospel. And that's what they need to see. They need to be focused on what happens on the inside. Jesus straightens this out for the, for the Pharisees who thought they were clean in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. He called all the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You just read a list like that and you almost picture a volcano coming out of somebody's mouth of all this gross stuff. And I'm like, that's what's inside of me. Our problem isn't coming from outside of us. It's coming from inside of us. Like we've traced the call and it's coming from inside the house. That's all I could think about, you know, when I was putting this together. It's a terrible movie from the 70s or the 80s, but, but it's like that's where the problem is. 
We are unclean and impure because of sin, and we need to be made clean in order to come before a holy and pure God. So how can we be made clean? The bad news is you can't clean yourself up. The good news is God can, and He's willing to do that through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how we get clean. He will accept you just as you are right now. A lot of people think you have to get cleaned up before you can come to God. That's not, that's not how it works. Come to God, and He'll clean you up. This is why Jesus went to the cross. If you will turn to Him in repentance and believe that His death for you on the cross will make you clean and that His resurrection from the dead proved that He has superior cleansing power, you can be made perfectly clean. <laughs> I mean, just think about that for a second. Think about who you are. You know, I, I don't like to do this sometimes you know, in front of people because it's overwhelming a little bit, but I think of your heart. Think of your mind. Think of the, just the stuff that nobody else knows about. And God has given you an opportunity to be clean. And if the Son of God makes you clean, you are clean indeed. That's not a verse, but it sounded really good when I, when I thought of it. You are clean indeed. Only Jesus can do this. Have you been washed clean through what Jesus did on the cross? Are you trusting in that alone for your salvation? There's this terrible, terrifying verse, I should say, in Revelation 21 that says this in 21:27, speaking about the kingdom of God, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. So the question is, are you clean? Are you washed? by the blood of the Lamb. The table is set before us for this remembrance to recall what Jesus did on the cross. And I love Isaiah 118. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. That's what Jesus offers you through His broken body and His blood shed for you. He took the punishment that you deserve, just like David prayed at the beginning of the service. I love that the gospel was preached even in the prayer at the beginning. He took the punishment that should have gone on to you and he put it on to Christ. And if you put your faith in that and trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and you turn from everything else and turn to that, he will instead give you his righteousness instead of what we deserve. He will declare you righteous, not guilty, clean. That's the best news anyone can ever hear. So as we take communion this morning and we remember who Jesus is and what he's done and remember this message that we're supposed to take out to the people around us, worship God with a thankful heart. Father, thank you so much for passages like this that remind us of your holiness and that remind us of our sinfulness and, and that, that scream to us that the only chance we have of ever being clean before a holy God is Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for giving us your son. We thank you that he willingly went to the cross in our place and that, that he did all the work so that all we have to do is come by faith and believe. Lord, I pray that there's anybody here today that hasn't believed in their heart that Jesus Christ is their Lord and confess with their mouth that he, that he I think I got that backwards, but confess with their mouth that, he, that God raised him from the dead, that they would, they would hear that, that they would believe it with all their heart and that they would be transformed completely from the inside out. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.